Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Again, our thanks to all the volunteers that made this possible. Um, there's a lot of work that goes into it, maybe more than we realize, um, but they, they did a marvelous job this past week, and it was a good, I think, um, profitable week. As was mentioned earlier, today is Pentecost Sunday, and we will do a, a little bit of reading here in the book of Acts, first in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, and then explain, hopefully, um, maybe in a different way, what Pentecost is all about. In the first chapter of Acts, prior to Jesus' ascension, he gathers the disciples together with him, and in verse 6, reading from the English Standard Version today, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Pentecost comes from the word 50, and there are there is a long history for Pentecost. Fifty days after the very first Passover was celebrated in Egypt. Before they fled Egypt, the Red Sea was divided. They went across on dry ground and escaped the Egyptian army. Fifty days after that, by now the people of Israel gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. God came down to the top of Mount Sinai and gave to Moses, written by his finger on tablets of stone, the law, the Ten Commandments. That occurred 50 days. When they got into the promised land, which was 40 years later, they were to 
have one of the three major feasts that the Jews required. God required them to appear at the temple each year. One of them was the Feast of Pentecost, which not only 50 days after the Exodus, the Passover, giving of the law, but it also served as they called the Feast of First Fruits, the very beginning of the spring wheat harvest was celebrated in gratitude to God for giving the first of what they assumed and God promised would be much more to come. That's also a theme of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit poured out upon the believers on this day, 50 days after Passover had been celebrated. And in this case, the Passover was marked by the crucifixion of Jesus. He is our Passover. And 50 days later, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the waiting saints of God in Jerusalem. And on that single day, 3,000 people were converted and baptized. That's first fruits. The first fruits of the work of the Holy Spirit in hearts to, as Peter said on that day, clear to the ends of the earth. So there's a lot of ceremonial background to the day of Pentecost. A way in which, to me, a, a, a little way that we see the early church honored this day and the importance they gave to it it's just a little blurb in the 20th chapter of Acts we don't need to go to. But Paul cut short his third missionary journey and passed up some cities in what today would be southwestern Turkey. He skipped some places where he could have stopped and visited previous converts so that he could get to Jerusalem in time to be there for the day of Pentecost. It mattered greatly to them. Now, I'm not here today to pick at any of you. Who pays attention to Pentecost anymore? A few of the liturgical churches, the ritual, have liturgies, and which is good. But the vast majority of the churches, we don't even pay attention to Pentecost. Except God did. Jesus did. Paul did. The Old Testament prophets, including Moses, spent 1,500 years pointing to this. Until the final, you would say, pre-Christ prophet, John the Baptist. His whole message for the short six months of his ministry was I'm baptizing you with water for the forgiveness of sins but Jesus is coming after me the one who's coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire and purify your hearts what are we doing letting that drop now what is behind what John the Baptist called and so did Jesus the baptism with the Holy Spirit. There's some foundational truths that we need to 
think about. And I think it helps us, hopefully, in a fresh way, understand what the day of Pentecost is all about. Here's some fundamental truths. We are created, every one of us, I think we all know this, we're created by God. But, in addition to that, we have to remember we're not only created by God, we're created for God. He didn't just create us to watch us run around and play in the world he made. He had a specific design for us. Not again did he just create us to be creating us. He, had, he created us with a specific purpose for us in mind. So he had a design. This design of God's for us is the key how I conform to that design or don't conform to it is the key to spiritual health or disease. Every one of us has a design. It's a universal, all humans. Whether we acknowledge it, whether we listen to it, it doesn't make any difference. It still is God's design for us. How much we conform to it or don't will determine our health spiritually. We're either healthy or we're diseased. Now, his universal, we could sum up one word in a sense, his universal design. And that is that we love him. He created us to love him. But there are three specific relationships by which we express that love to him. These three then, one, and wait till I get done, I'm not leaving any out, creature to creator, that's number one. I have a relationship, he created me for this purpose, that I relate to him as a creature to his creator, which requires worship with reverence and awe. That's the first thing. We worship him with reverence and with awe. I think it is significant then that in a very much of the church today, and I would have to say, um, it doesn't matter which branches of the church. One of the things that I think we've lost or are losing or have not valued like we should is reverence, awe. He's our creator. He's our maker. And I'm not going to get it. I don't have a lot of time this morning. We're going to have communion at the end. So i got to hurry up can't tell you a lot of stories, except to say the only reason that I am here today alive is because I adhered to what my parents taught me. You run, you run 
in church, but especially you run in the sanctuary, you play up around the altar, my dad was the preacher, you die and go to hell immediately. Okay? You lightning comes through the ceiling of the sanctuary and you're dead. Okay? Now, I didn't grow up that warped, but this was a, this this is God's house. And you you were reverent. That'd be real healthy for us to recapture. God is our maker, and we worship him in reverence and awe. Second is the relationship of a steward to his or her owner. The whole concept of stewardship is that I serve and manage for an owner, the owner's estate. It is not mine. I am obligated to the estate owner to serve at that estate owner's pleasure. I do not do what I might choose. I do what my owner directs me to do. So a second relationship to, uh, of how we love God is that we love him in a moment-by-moment -moment acknowledgement that I'm not my own. God owns me. And I am not only a steward of this creation that he's put into our hands, but the ultimate creation is myself. And I am to operate as a steward to the one who owns not only all this, but me. He owns me. I don't have a right to myself. Now, I know we could spend a lot of time there. All we talk about today is our rights. The truth of the matter is, I have no right to myself. I don't have any right to myself. I didn't make myself. I don't keep myself alive. God sustains me moment by moment, instant by instant. He upholds all this creation by the word of his power. My life is as long as he says it is. And when he, as the Psalms say, withdraws his breath, we die. I don't have any rights. God owns me twice because he made me. And then when we wandered into sin, he paid the penalty for sin and bought me, redeemed means to buy me back. So twice he owns me. He made me and he bought me with his own blood. I don't have a right to myself. So I am to love him as a steward to the owner. The final relationship is as a subject to a sovereign. We're seeing a lot today of the Queen of England's 70th anniversary of reigning. And they talk about her subjects. It's not like it's not like that. The queen can't do anything to you. Even if she wanted to. God can. He's really our sovereign. 
and I am really his subject. Now, those three relationships are universal. They are not in any way optional. And it doesn't matter whether we abide by them or not. They're still incumbent on us. And we are judged by whether we conform to them or not. Those three basic relationships that we owe to God, any rejection of those is what God terms sin. There's where sin comes in. It's the rejection of my obligation to Him as a creature to a creator, as a steward to the owner, and as a subject to the sovereign, to the king. Those are, those are the three fundamental relationships that I owe to God and upon which all else rests. Now you might think, well, that's kind of a severe kind of look of God. There's no, where's the joy and the happiness and the fathership of God? Where's that at? Well, that's on top of these three. I, I am obligated in these three ways. Even when I become, when I come to know God in a new way as Father and Savior, I maintain my relationship to my Father and my Savior as long as I maintain those fundamental three. I'm not minimizing at all the new birth and becoming a child of God. But God brings me into his family by the new birth, repentance and faith and forsaking of sin so that I keep these three basic relationships. Does that make sense? Now, further, <clears throat> we need to look at those three as our fundamental duty to God. And I don't, I'll cut this short here. The Bible is filled with a couple words that we all know. Heart, sometimes soul, but heart or mind. Heart, we kind of understand better. It's the wheelhouse here, we know. It's heart. The Bible uses often, especially in the New Testament, the word mind. And mind is not just the organic brain. Mind is the whole capacity of understanding, of deciding, of weighing options, of reasoning through, and of taking a position. The word mind sometimes means set of the sails, meaning a purpose that I have determined and I stick to it. Let this mind, Paul said, be in you that was also in Christ Jesus who didn't count the fact that he was equal with God something to be grasped but he even laid that aside 
to take on himself human form, come here and submit even to the, the degrading death on the cross. But God the Father highly has exalted him. So he said, let this mind of humility, submission be in you. Mind is not just two plus two is four and I know some math. It's a set. It's a direction. It is like taking the wheel of a ship as they would and lash it to a point to where the wheel doesn't turn. This is, this is the set we're going to. That is what mind means. There are two parts, if you want to call it. Scripture teaches this. Of our mind. Conscious and subconscious. Now, this is going to be simplified, and maybe some theologian somewhere would, if, if they do, the thousands that are watching it, probably their eyes roll back in their head and they'd fall over to hear what I'm going to say. But to try to simplify things. When we become believers, I think much of the work of God, or maybe most of the work of God, when we come, become Christians, we repent of sin. Sinning. Where does sinning, in a sense, take place? In the conscious mind. Something is not an act of sin unless it has two elements. I know what's right, and I decide not to do it. So it's two elements, spiritual light and a decision to defy it, to reject it. I'm fully conscious of it. That's why I'm guilty. We even understand that to a certain degree in personal relationships. We understand it in our judicial system. If I walk down here and walk through and walk through the aisle here and there's somebody whose feet are sticking out and I just grind my heel good and I go on by and I'm kind of glad because I didn't like them anyway. Or I walk by them and accidentally step on their toes and trip over it. Do you see a difference there? Anybody recognize a difference? Of course. If you've got two brain cells, you understand. One was intentional. One was I was aware. The other was involuntary. I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't even realize it until I did it. Conscious is where sinning springs. We think. And we're aware of it. We go to God, those are things we're aware of. And we tell him, Lord, I'm sorry for the life I've been living. Consciously in rejection to you. He forgives us. He comes into our hearts. Clears our conscience of all those things. Gives us the grace to begin then to walk in a way that no longer consciously rejects and disobeys him. Now, I can't deal with the fact that a lot of people say, well, we just sin all the time. You better not. First John said, he that's born of God does not keep on sinning. That's conscious. But we discover, the Bible's clear, human experience is clear, that there's a subconscious down below the conscious. That's where I believe the sinful nature that we're born with lives. That's its location. Now, here's the quandary that we get into as believers. When we become Christians, 
we're committed to those three relationships. I want to love God as a creator to, or a creature to the creator, and so forth. I want to keep that relationship. I want to fulfill those three. But I find something that is not conscious. I've quit consciously rebelling against God. But I discover something contrary to my conscious commitment to God that is located in the subconscious that keeps me from fully fulfilling that humble, trusting, totally obedient walk with God. Something that I'm not willing, I'm not choosing. Paul said that. He said, I want to do good, but when I want to do good, evil's present with me. Where is this coming from? It's beneath the conscious. And that condition, the Bible labels, double-minded. My conscious goes that way to Christ, but something down here is dragging me the other direction. And I am torn between that. What's to be done with it? Pentecost. The disciples followed Jesus, but we all know about the up and down relationship they had. And Jesus would love the dear souls and commend them. And the very next day, sometimes the same day, he would tell them, you heart of heart, you old fools, slow to believe what's the matter with you. That's double-mindedness. Jesus can't send us out into a hostile world with that two inner civil war going on and expect us to be the kind of witnesses he wants us to be. So he says, I want to purge and purify what's subconscious so that the basic subconscious impulse of my heart is a spontaneous desire to reverence him, obey him explicitly, serve him knowing he's my owner, and walking with him in what the scripture says, perfect love, full, it means full, total, utter allegiance, and obedience. That's God's purpose from creation. He created us for that purpose. This is how, after the ravages of sin, God proposes to restore us to that. Pentecost, then, is the necessary capstone of that redemptive work. Now, I really got to make this quick. But you might think, well, if, if I pray and ask God to fill me with his spirit and purify my heart, like Peter said happened to them, then I'll just have no issues. No. My subconscious can be clean. My heart can be clean. But all of that, a clean heart and love to God, unfortunately, has to express itself through our temperament, our personality, our minds, our level of intelligence or lack thereof, the culture we were taught, the way we were raised, 
some of the events we encountered in life that marked us. That takes time. That takes time to walk with God. And he gradually irons out that which is iron outable and gives me grace to put up with the rest that can't be fixed. That's why we're supposed to have grace with each other. Paul said the word he uses was put up with one another. Why do we have to put up with one another? Because everybody's still got wrinkles God's dealing with. Let me close with this brilliant illustration. <clears throat> My wife, I didn't do this, she did it. Um, she bought this area rug in the living room. And I, didn't, I don't even know how much it costs. I don't want to know. You know, it's like I used to, I told her all my life, there was a little phrase of her when I was a little kid. You can throw it out the back door with a tablespoon faster than I can bring it in the front door with a scoop shovel. Money. Um, so, you know, I keep her in her place. This thing came to us, leaned up against the front door, nine feet or whatever. Tightly rolled up. But I owned it. Because I bought it. Even though she ordered it, I bought it. So I owned it. I had a purpose for it. Not to have it lean at the front door or just leave it rolled up and put it in the garage. It's to own it. To roll it out. It has a purpose. It's design. And we rolled it out and it fulfilled its purpose in that it covered the floor and it's nice to walk on and all that. But due to its tight rolling, there's creases in it. There's lumps in it. Now they assure you, even online, that those will gradually go away. They better. That's a really primitive kind of illustration. But it's kind of like God buys us. And he has a reason for buying us. He has a purpose for us. He takes us into his house. He takes off all the restraints. This thing was wrapped in all kinds of wrappings. We cut all that off and released it. So it could fulfill its purpose. A lot of people point to the words of Jesus to Lazarus. Loose him and let him go. God made him alive. Jesus brought him to life right there. But he was still bound up in grave clothes that restricted him from his purpose. And in a second command, not only Lazarus rise, but loose him and let him go. Take the restraints off so he can fill his purpose. That's what being filled with the Holy Spirit does. Then, after that occurs... It's time to gradually get the wrinkles of our personalities, temperament, and so forth, which are not sin, out. And we just more and more and more fulfill our purpose. I hope that makes some sense to us. It may be a different way to look at the utter necessity of Pentecost for each of us as individuals.
Let's bow our heads. And then as we pray, we'll also pray preparing our hearts for partaking together in the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, thank you for redemption. Partaking in the Lord's Supper is all about doing this in remembrance that you shed your blood for each of us. As we partake, I pray that we would let you search our own hearts. First, as to conscious awareness of our purpose that you have for us. Are we fulfilling it? Are we conforming? Second, have you purged from our subconscious that impulse not to obey you, but to serve ourselves? Help us through your spirit to look in your mirror and see our hearts as we prepare our hearts to partake together. In Christ's name, amen.